0: Please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. We finished the book of Acts a couple of months ago, and we've done a few short sermon series between then and now. And now we would like to get back to the Gospel of Matthew and work our way through this. If you are wondering at the front end how long this will take, I am not sure the answer to that question. It will be a while probably in the Gospel of Matthew. I really am looking forward to this. There is so much to soak in uh, in this Gospel. And I'm going to go ahead and read the first six verses, and the the focus of the message will be on John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and this is God's Word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins." Well, I want to take a moment to sort of build towards where we are in Matthew 3, so I'm actually going to leave the gospel of Matthew, and I want to turn to the gospel of Luke. If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Matthew doesn't include the birth story of John the Baptist, so I'd like to pick up a little bit on John's background from the Gospel of Luke. I'm so thankful, aren't you, that we have four Gospels because we get such a rich, multi-angled view on the person of Christ. All four Gospels are inspired and inerrant, and they all are a slightly different camera angle or snapshot of who Jesus is. They give us accurate but not always identical information, and so it's wonderful to have different sources to learn about Jesus and about, in this case, John the Baptist. Now, just to kind of give you a warning of where I'm going, I've got two points for the message, but it will take a moment to walk through these two points. The first point is actually going to come from Luke, and the second point will come from Matthew 3. The first point about John the Baptist is he was spirit filled from his mother's womb. I'm going to talk about this for a, for a period. And then the second point so he was spirit filled from his mother's womb. And point number two, he was the Elijah like voice crying in the wilderness. If you go back to the pre-Civil War South, you can hear accounts. I've read these. Uh, You may have seen these as well. If a pastor in the pre-Civil War South were to preach against slavery as an institution, very often the accusations would be raised, ah, you're mixing politics and church. You're mixing politics into the pulpit. You need to keep the politics out And so, there was a massive pressure to not want to speak about an obvious, an obvious moral issue of the day, and many pastors, I believe, either out of cowardice or deceit or whatever it was, did not get as clear as they should have and could have been on these issues because of the, the, the fear of accusations that may come if they were to address the issue of slavery directly. Well, with this week being as it's been, I could not escape these two things. The issue of the possibility of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which again, this is not certain, but the possibility, the leaked document for the Supreme Court this past week, which I think was maybe on Monday night or whatever day that was, that's been in the news, and I've been thinking about it a lot this week. And on the other side, Mother's Day was this Sunday, and I thought, okay, I want to talk about John. I would like to give a little background, and some of the texts about his time in his mother's womb seemed to just fit perfectly into this moment. And I thought, you know, in the entire time we've had a church, it's been, you know, six years, I think we've spent a grand total of six minutes talking about abortion from the pulpit. I, I've hardly spoken of it. And I, I just think, you know, the way that we look back to the pre-Civil War South and say, where were the pulpits? that needed to be speaking about the West African slave trade. Where was that? Where was the, what was up with the silence going on? Uh, I, I feel a conviction to say, have I been as clear and direct on this issue as I should be? Uh, will a generation look back in the future and say, wait, you were alive during what years? And for six years you spent how much time talking about this issue? Six minutes? I can imagine someone saying, honestly, why? So I do want to spend an extended period at the beginning of this message, speaking to the issue of life in the womb. And John is about as good an example of it as we have in all the Bible. Look with me at Luke chapter 1, John's father, Zechariah, his mother Elizabeth. Just follow along as I read here, Luke 1, starting in verse 5. "'In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth.' And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Let me just pause to say, whenever the Bible mentions a barren couple, you know God is about to do something unusual. If you know biblical history well, verse, uh, verse 8 Now, while he, this is the father, was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So, just pause here. This is in the holy place, not in the most holy place. He's not a high priest going into the most holy place. He's outside the Holy of Holies, and there's the altar of incense, and standing to his right there is the angel, Gabriel. Verse 12, "'And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, "'Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John.'" let me just say as an aside, this is not a main point. I seriously doubt Zechariah had only prayed one time for his wife and he to conceive and have a child. I have no doubt this is something he'd been praying for years. And so often we begin praying for something, and if it doesn't happen, we're praying for maybe someone's salvation, and it's been six months or six years, and it hasn't happened, we go, I guess it's just not going to happen, and we just want to give up. I, I would speculate Zechariah had been praying for this for years. If they're in their 40s or beyond, he had probably been praying for this for 20, maybe 30 years, and now finally the prayer is being answered. Let us not grow weary in praying, especially for the lost in our lives. Look with me at verse thir- uh, 14. To the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." This astonishing statement, John in his mother's womb, look at verse 15, he is filled with the Spirit even from his mother's womb. This is a clear indication that John is a human being, an image bearer of God, being knit together In his mother's womb, as Psalm 139 says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I know your works, I know them full well. The Lord is at work, His knitting work is going on in the womb, and the Spirit of God is upon John, even while he is still within his mother's womb. Turn with me to chapter… well, turn with me later in… it's a long chapter… later in chapter 1 of Luke… Whenever a chapter has 50 verses, you think you're moving to another chapter, it's the same chapter. Uh, later in, in, in Luke chapter 1, Mary has found out she will conceive of a virgin, the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 39. After Mary has found out that, her, that, uh, that Elizabeth has also gotten pregnant, here's what happens. Verse 39, "'In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary,' i don't often bring up necessarily stories that are this personal, but I thought I could mention this here a couple of years ago. my, my wife and I were pregnant with our third child and we went to get uh, our first ultrasound, which is a nerve wracking experience if you if you've ever gone through this and uh, we were around the eight week mark and we saw the ultrasound, and the, the child was was seemed to be doing well. We had the heartbeat. We could hear going very quickly as you hear those heartbeats of, of small children in the womb, and we could see, you know, the hands moving. You can see the tiny little feet, and you can see the head very clearly, and the baby seemed to be doing well. Uh, this was, I believe, in December of uh, November of 2019, I believe it was, and uh, we left, and we both were able to be there for that. And a few weeks later, around our 11 or 12-week appointment, we returned. And uh, this has happened, I know, to others in this room. Uh, When the ultrasound began, uh, the the woman who was doing it did not immediately hear a heartbeat or see any movement, so she left to get her supervisor. Kelly began to cry. We knew immediately that we had had a miscarriage. Uh, I began to cry. Uh, The doctor came in, and they checked again to make sure uh, the baby was no longer alive. The heartbeat had ceased. The baby was just sitting there, lifeless, in, in Kelly's womb. <sighs> and uh, a- afterwards, we went out to the parking lot, Kelly and I, and we sat in the van for a little while, and we had to go different directions. I had to go back, I believe, to school. She had to go somewhere else. I went and got in my car, and I opened my Bible to Second Samuel. chapter 12, and just listen to this. This is after David's adultery with Bathsheba. The child is born. Remember, after seven days, the child dies. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Amazing response from David. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. It's like a mini-Job response. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate, Then his servant said to them, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. This is the verse I read in the parking lot. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. read that again. David says, but now he is dead, the seven-day-old child, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Back again from the dead. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. That's the verse I read in the parking lot because I believe David is speaking about not somewhere he's going on earth because the child's not going to come back from the dead. Where is David going? He's going to go to heaven when he dies. Where does that imply his child went ahead of him? His child went to heaven ahead of him. And David says, he's not going to return to me from the dead, but I will go to him when I die. And I think that's what the meaning of that verse is. And so, I take great comfort in that. Here's why I bring up a personal story, and again, I'm not alone, and Kelly and I are not alone in going through something like this by any stretch of the imagination. Bringing up your personal sufferings in front of a large group of people is always an embarrassing thing because you know how many ways so many in this room have suffered far more than you ever probably will. So, I'm not trying to do something like a comparison here. I'm just saying that here's what I know. Here's what I know. The knitting together in the womb is the divine work of God the Father at work in that mother's womb, and that from the very beginning at conception, you have here an image bearer of God with an eternal immortal soul and that even a child who dies 10 weeks, like hours, into the pregnancy, we don't even know if it was a boy or a girl. We believe, I believe with all my heart, that was a human being made in God's image, and that child, I believe with David, is not going to return to me, but I pray one day I will go to him or her. And so, we believe that in the womb, you have a baby that is present. Look at Luke one forty one. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary… The baby leaped in her womb. That word baby, let me tell you a Greek word. I don't like to just throw Greek words around. It can sound sort of highfalutin sometimes, but I'll just, I gotta give you a Greek word here. The Greek word right here is the word brephos. It is the word for a a tiny baby. That word right there, the Greek word, the brephos leapt in her womb, leaped in her womb, the brephos, the baby. Look at verse 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting, and that's Mary speaking to Elizabeth, Elizabeth's about six months pregnant here. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the brephos, the baby in my womb, leaped for joy. Now just pause here. Leaping and leaping for joy, does that sound like something that a human being does, not a clump of cells? Being filled with the Spirit, is that something a human being experiences, or is that something a pre human clump of cells experiences? This is something that an image bearer of God experiences. But here's my point look at chapter two of Luke. The the Christmas story, look at the shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night, verse 11. The angels are speaking to the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you, for you will find a brephos wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Look at verse 16, verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the brephos lying in the manger. Now, do you see what's happening here? Luke uses the identical Greek term brephos to describe John in the womb twice in chapter 1. The same exact Greek term is used twice to describe Jesus out of the womb, in the manger. Why in the world, if one is a pre-human, non-human creature of some kind, and one is a born true image-bearer human being, why would you use the exact same term to describe both of them? The answer is, you would not. This is as clear as the Bible can possibly be. Just as Jesus laying in the manger was a human being in the image of God, also the god man but he was a human baby a brephos so john in the womb of of his uh, mother elizabeth was also a brephos he was also a living child turn with me to luke 18 luke chapter 18 you know this passage verse 15 Luke 18, verse 15, now they were bringing even infants, you know what that is? That's the word brephos in plural, brephé, okay? It's the same term in the plural, brephé, brephos in the plural. Now, they were bringing even infants to Him that He might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them, but Jesus called to Him, excuse me, but Jesus called them to Him saying, let the children come to Me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I remember one time at a Ligonier conference, I believe it was, this is more than ten years ago, I think, R.C. Sproul, when he was still living here on earth, uh, R.C. was asked a question, and the question, I think, was just, could you be wrong? wow, that's (laughs) open-ended? I'm sure there's many ways in which I'm wrong. So, how are you going to answer that question? If somebody says, could you be wrong? Like, about what exactly? And R.C. Sproul gave an unforgettable answer. I did not expect him to say what he said at all, at least not the end. R.C., if you know him, he was in his 60s or 70s at the time, an incredible theologian, uh, just a wonderful godly man. R.C. says, hey, what do you mean, could I be wrong? Could I be wrong about some doctrinal issues that I hold to? Yes. There are some things I'm probably wrong about that I just don't know better. On secondary issues, there might be some things I don't have quite right. And then he said something I did not see coming because it just came out of left field in my mind. He said, but if there's one thing I know for sure about the God of the Bible, it is that He hates abortion. Did not see that coming. As far as I know, there was no conversation about abortion beforehand. He just said, listen, I could be wrong about a number of things. There's something I'm sure about. I am sure that the God of the Bible is not in favor of the killing of the unborn. The, Christ, the Athens Pregnancy Center here in town does a lot of wonderful work for women in crisis pregnancy situations. I may have told this before, but I can't help but telling it. A girl I went to school with, she was a couple years younger than I was at Westminster. She worked at Athens Pregnancy Center for a number of years. Her name was Krista, and she answered phones. A lot of times, girls are confused, and they're seeking help in the midst of a difficult situation regarding their pregnancy. And so, Krista, in one instance, asked a young woman uh, to come in who was pregnant, and she was confused. She didn't know what to do. Krista had her come into the pregnancy center. And Krista said, we offer free ultrasounds. Can we please just let you see your, your child? Can we, just, can we just do this? Would you allow us to give you a free ultrasound? The mother in this instance said yes. The mother was taken back into the room. They did the free ultrasound. And when the mother who up to this moment was planning to have an abortion, when she saw the child on the ultrasound heard the heartbeat, which we've seen this, right? The the, the fingers and the toes and the feet are identifiable from such an early point. You hear that thumping heartbeat running so quickly every few seconds. When the mother saw it, she changed her mind. She delivered the child healthy. She came back to see Krista six months or a year later. Krista took a picture with the mother while she was holding the baby. It's one of the most beautiful pictures you'll ever see in your life because of the way the Lord used Krista in that moment to rescue that child and to love that mother in a particularly uh, powerful kind of way. Now, before I get too far along here, let me say as clearly as I can, abortion is a sin. It is a grievous and serious sin. It is the Willful taking of innocent human life, the deliberate and willful taking of innocent human life, and it is not an unforgivable sin. We have a gospel that is so big that those who have been guilty, both men and women involved in these situations, who have been guilty of having their child killed, I'm going to say it directly through this means, have and can be forgiven fully for that sin, they can come to Christ in repentance and faith, and they can say, Lord, I confess that what I did was wrong. It was monstrously wrong. It was a violation of the sixth commandment not to murder. Lord, please forgive me for what I have done. Please wash me clean. And you may know, I personally know, more than one woman who has had an abortion who has then trusted Christ and has been forgiven of the abortion that she has been a part of. Some of these women want to give their lives now for the pro-life movement, to try to help this happen less and less often as we move forward. I read the Exodus, the beginning of the Exodus story at the beginning. You may have been wondering, why are we reading about Shifra and Puah, right? Our favorite midwives from Exodus chapter 1. Why, why are we reading about these heroic, amazing women right now? Well, of course, it is Mother's Day, but the reason why I wanted to read that story is because of this. And I, I'm not making this up. I, you've heard it maybe before. It comes from another pastor. But, but please hear this to all the women who are either mothers or future mothers in the room. I hope this lands on you with tremendous joy at the job the Lord may either… has already given you or may give to you in the future of being a wife and a mother. In the Old Testament, the most significant redemptive event that ever happened was the Exodus. It's the central redemptive event of the Old Testament, and it's the pattern of the gospel, released from slavery, through the waters, headed towards the Promised Land. That's our story too. and. That story that we just read from in Exodus 1 and 2, this is amazing to me. How does the greatest redemptive event of the entire Old Testament begin? Number one, Moses' mother risks her life keeping the child, not drowning the child, keeping baby Moses in those early months. Number two, when Moses is placed in that little, it's called an ark in Hebrew, in that little boat with covered in pitch when it's placed amongst the reeds in the river, number two, Pharaoh's daughter, although not a believer, feels compassion for this child. Number three, Moses' sister Miriam, you know her well, right, from later in the Bible. Miriam is that older sister. She keeps watch over Moses as he sits in that little basket, and she watches to see Pharaoh's daughter come, and she runs down heroically and bravely and offers to to take care of the child. "Can Can I get you a nursing mother to care for this child? and Pharaoh's mother sends them back. And preceding all that, you have these two wonderful women, Shifra and Puah, who risked their lives to save the boys who were supposed to be killed after birth. So, how does the most significant redemptive event in the entire Old Testament starts? It starts with five women caring for children. That's how exodus begins. If you are buying into the lies of our culture that say that motherhood and bearing and raising children is really beneath women. It's really not that important what women are doing. Like, not that important. Like, what else is important? What? Raising the next generation is not important? What else matters? So, the exodus begins with five women caring for children, but here's the mind-blowing part. The new exodus… The most important redemptive event of the New Testament and of all of human history? We just read how it began. It began with two pregnant women caring for their unborn and soon-to-be-born child, children. That's how, the, that's how the, the gospel starts with Zechariah and Elizabeth pregnant with John, Mary as a virgin pregnant with the Lord Jesus. It is them caring for the unborn and born children that the Lord gives them. That is how the gospel comes into being. Do, do, we, do we get a clue here on the significance and the weight and glory? The way many today talk about the unborn or the way sometimes pregnant women will speak about the child in their womb is a, a parasite. They will use this incredible language of a, this parasite in my body that I want to get rid of. The gift of human life is not a parasite. It is glorious. God has given men and women together, legally, in God's Word, in the confines and in the, in the, in the covenant of marriage… God has given women this almost miraculous ability to conceive and develop a human life, an eternal image bearer of God, in her womb for those nine months, deliver that child, and by God's grace, raise that child. This is astonishing, the weight and glory and beauty of what motherhood is. This is no small thing. So, how does John the Baptist come on the scene? It's through the actions of his mother. Mother, And it's through the actions of Jesus' mother, Mary, as the Spirit works upon them. Since Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade came into law 1973 almost 50 years ago now. Last number I saw, I know the number gets bigger all the time, is that 63 million, 63 million unborn children have been killed. You know how. I'm not going to go through all the ways in which different abortion procedures work, the vacuum abortion and all these different things that happen. Sixty-three million have been dismembered in different ways and killed in the womb legally, with congressional funding, by the way, uh, over the last 49, almost 50 years. Now, listen, this is my personal conviction here, and you tell me if you think I'm right or wrong. I really think even we as Christians have largely grown numb to what we're talking about right now. Hitler killed 10 million. We've killed 63 million. We civilized, post-Holocaust, civilized Americans have the blood of 63 million unborn children on our hands. That's a number I cannot fathom. I think we have grown numb to the weight of what is actually happening around us. Obviously, this is why adoption is a glorious thing. Adoption and abortion, were they two letters different and a world apart? Adoption is a glorious thing. Fostering for those who are able to do it is a wonderful thing where we are able to reach out and care for those in such dire need. And by God's grace, it has been Christians historically who have really moved the ball forward on those kinds of issues, and I think that is a wonderful testimony to God's grace in our lives. But please hear me, the gospel is big enough to forgive any who will turn and trust in Christ. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter 3. Some of this I will probably postpone till next Sunday for the sake of time, but I do want to get a little bit into our second point today. Oh, before I finish this point, please join me in praying that this summer it would actually come true, that Roe would be no more, that the Supreme Court would overturn it, and then on a state level, a battle will begin in different places. But pray that the church rises up in a way that maybe we've never seen before to speak truth and also love those who are most vulnerable in these particular circumstances. And I, I do pray that we would see the end of Roe v. I mean, can you imagine? We may see the end of it this summer. Just a possibility of it is astonishing. So, let's pray that that is what happens this summer, that, more, that hopefully hundreds of thousands of children would be saved if that were the case, hopefully millions. Back to Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist is now turned into an adult. He's now probably around the age of 30, somewhere in that ballpark. He is, so number one, He's a spirit, he, is, he was spirit-filled from his mother's womb. Point number two, he was the Elijah-like voice crying in the wilderness. Let me begin back in Matthew 3.1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Well, let me just say here, first thing, we'll talk more about this on a future Sunday, I'm sure. This quotation is from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 I believe it's in all four gospels oftentimes more than once the voice in the wilderness preparing the way of the lord now here is something that is crucial that you do not want to miss there's a vo- okay so there's two individuals in this prophecy there's a voice coming from some prophet right there's a voice Isaiah says it's going to prepare the way of who's the second person here the lord yahweh right So we all know who the voice is. This could not be clear. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all say the exact same thing. The voice is John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist is the voice. He's preparing the way for who? Well, we know it's Jesus, but who does the text say it is? It's Yahweh. It's the Lord. So, this is an unabashed statement that Jesus, when He shows up on the scene being introduced by John, He is Yahweh the god of the old testament walking in human flesh when he comes to be baptized which we'll see in future weeks it is yahweh incarnate it is god in the flesh who is coming to have to, to be baptized by john why does john make his appearance in the wilderness now you don't have to turn to this passage just listen to hosea 2 L- listen to these verses why the wilderness what's the significance of that listen to hosea 2:14 Therefore, behold, God speaking to wayward Israel. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered no more. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Hosea says, Listen, God's people and God Himself, they are going to have a reunion ceremony, and where is it going to happen? It's going to happen in the wilderness. That's what John knows. John knows, man, Israel has turned its back on the Lord. They need to have their hearts made ready before the Lord shows up. They need to make the roads ready. If you've ever seen in the past when a very important political person shows up in town, oh man, we make the roads ready, don't we? I remember uh, hearing uh, Al Mohler preaching, maybe I don't know how many years ago, I don't even know which president he was talking about, but one of our last presidents came to Louisville, where he lives, and he said that they shut down all lanes on the highway on both sides of the highway so that the presidential limousine could drive down the highway all by itself. Why? Because when you have someone who is of incredible dignity and worth, you clear the way, you make the way ready. I remember when Atlanta hosted the Olympics back in 1996. Some of you may have been around for some of those events, but when you went to Atlanta in 96, man, it looked like a different city. Why? Because the world was coming to Atlanta. And so Atlanta was going to get ready to see the world. Atlanta wanted to look its absolute best. And we poured, I don't know how many millions of dollars into beautifying the landscape in Atlanta because someone important is coming. The the, the Olympics are coming. Well, John is saying, listen, the Lord himself is coming. And we need to prepare our hearts and ourselves for the Lord who is on His way. And how do we do that? It's not about geographical changes and topography and plants, those kinds of things. It's metaphorical language here, making the path straight. We need to confess our sins to one another. We need to repent of our sins. We put our faith in the coming Messiah, and we need to be prepared for when He arrives, for when He comes in front of us, when we are going to see Him. Let me take you to the last book of the Bible. It should just be a couple pages to your left if you're looking at your Bible there. Malachi chapter 3. I'm just going to read a few verses. Last book of our, of our Old Testament. Look with me at Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. This is predicted about 400 years before Jesus. Malachi 3.1, behold... God says, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, turn to chapter 4, the very last words of your Old Testament. Verse 4, Malachi 4, 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, The statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children, to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, here it is. John the Baptist shows up on the scene. We're told he's wearing, this certain kind of garb, this, the, the hair he's got on, and he's got the the, the, the the belt around his waist. He looks just like who? 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8 says, Elijah was dressed just like John. They, they, this is 2 Kings 1, 8. They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And they said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So why do we get the appearance and description of John? Because he looks just like Elijah. Why does he need to look like Elijah? Because he's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. He is the promised Elijah who is to come. He is going to preach that the coming Messiah, the king himself, is on his way. And we need to confess our sin, repent of our sin, and make our heart ready for the Lord who is coming. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter. 11, as we come towards the Lord's table, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The king came not to throw a revolt against Rome, but instead to be killed by the Romans for our sins, and this is what Jesus tells us here, and Paul tells us about what is said. 1 Corinthians 11, start with me in verse 23. And there's a warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, I'm not quite done with the message here. I'm almost done. I still want to read a, a brief story before I close and we are invited to the table, let me say what I think needs to be said every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Number one, if if you are not yet a Christian, if you have not yet turned from your sins and trusted in Christ's finished work, these elements are not yet for you. What you need is not the elements but what they symbolize, which is Jesus' death for you in your place if you will turn and trust in Him. If you have turned from your sins and trusted in Christ and you are not walking in deliberate, unrepentant sin, then please come forward after I am done praying and partake of these elements and return to your seat. But before I pray, let me read to you from Brian Chapel. Listen to these words concerning communion. During a, re- during a recent Easter season, I experienced the dilemma that I face so often at that time of year. I wanted to sense deep in my heart the reality of the suffering and redeeming Savior, but I have sat through so many Good Friday services and preached so many Easter services, I wondered not only what I could say that was fresh, but also how the season could have fresh meaning for my own heart. The answer I was seeking came during the communion service offered on Good Friday. In that service, we did something unusual for our church. We, pro- we, uh, we processed forward in a line to be served the bread and wine. My pew filed forward and I partook and then returned to my seat, still feeling a bit disconnected and empty. Then something gripped me in a quite unexpected way. I watched as the line before the pastor dwindled to the last few persons. Then a man I had not seen before joined the line. He was the last in the queue, and the reason he waited so long to join it was obvious. He did not want to stand long because he was suffering from Parkinson's disease. His body was bent And he quivered as he walked, seemingly ready to fall with almost every step. He reached for the bread clumsily. His hands shook uncontrollably as he drank the little cup of wine. The scene suddenly made the grace fresh to me again, as the Lord enabled me to see in the trembling man a spiritual image of myself. I, too, had no basis to stand and no right to be anywhere but last in line for God's mercy before the table of God's provision, I knew that I too had stumbled and that my sin was just cause for me to tremble before my Savior. And yet there He was before me in the bread and wine, the symbols of His body broken and blood spilled. He was broken for one as I and took my sin that I might know His mercy. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I do want to pray that Roe v. Wade would be overturned this year. Lord, I pray that You would allow through Your common grace our culture to begin to value the unborn in a way that goes far beyond what we imagine is even possible. Lord, I pray for This church. I already know many instances where this has happened, but I do pray that we could help in any way that is possible with this. Lord, I pray for any women who have had an abortion or their husbands or boyfriends who've been involved in that. Lord, I pray that they would find full and free forgiveness in the costly blood of Christ that was shed so that our blood would not have to be shed. God, I pray that You would awaken our culture to the truth of the gospel, that people would be fed up with so much that is clearly not true, that is being believed and said by so many, that people would be desperate for truth that can be trusted, what Francis Schaeffer called true truth. And I pray that people would be done with all the ups and downs of postmodernism and relativism and all the confusion of morality in our culture, and that people would see the beauty of Your holiness and the glory of substitutionary atonement, that God would become a man and stand in our place, giving His body for us and giving His blood for His people. God, I pray we would come to the table broken over our sin if the Lord kept a record of sins Who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. God, help us to come broken over our sin. Help us to be genuinely repentant. Help us to return with the bread and cup in our hands. And as we partake of these elements, help us to be physically, tangibly reminded of your love for your people. Reading from Psalm 139. The night is brighter, as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. O that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, Depart from me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the children, the many children that have been born in the six and a half years since our church began. Well over 20 children have been born in this church, Lord, and we are incredibly thankful for these little lives. Thank you for the mothers who pour endless energy and time and effort and all of their exhaustion and blood, sweat, and tears into these children. I pray, God, that you would encourage the mothers, that they would know that what they are doing has eternal significance, even when it feels very small at times. Lord, I pray for these children. I pray that you would convict them of their sin. I pray that they would sense your holiness and their sinfulness. And I pray at a very young age, each one of these children would be savingly brought into the arms of Christ through repentance and faith. I pray that you would grant the gift of faith and repentance to these children. God, I pray that they would have really boring testimonies of being saved very young. And God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself and preserve them by your hand, that no one would snatch them out of your hand because we know that's impossible and that you would bring them savingly home to glory. Pray this all in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.